You are listening to Go Full Crypto. I'm your host, Rogakshi Palway. This podcast is your best resource for crypto stories in the form of discussions and interviews. We uncomplexify tech jargon and we like to keep it simple. My co-host, Keegan Francis and I, we're here to empower you with the knowledge you need to confidently navigate your way into the world of crypto. Join us as we embark on the journey of driving the adoption of cryptocurrency. Join us in Going Full Crypto. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palway, and the guests interviewed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are solely their own. At no point in time should the topics of discussion be construed or taken as investment advice. Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palway, and their guests on this podcast will not be held accountable for any losses. The content discussed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are intended to be for informational purposes only. Welcome to episode 24 of the Go Full Crypto Podcast. We're here with Stephanie Holmes Winton, my former CEO. I met Stephanie a number of years ago. I worked for her when her company was called The Money Finder. Now it's called Cashflow. What Stephanie does is cashflow planning. And I'll let Stephanie herself tell our audience exactly what cashflow planning is and why that is important. And yeah, I think that we should just jump right in. Stephanie, why don't you introduce yourself however you like and then tell us what cash flow planning is and why it's important. Yeah, first of all, good morning, guys, and thanks for having me on. Um, cash flow planning for us is very behavior based. So it's helping people understand what they can change and making it easy to do so behaviorally. I started as a financial advisor and very much just gave verbal or written instructions to clients. And then we eventually found some patterns. The patterns allowed me to educate other financial professionals uh, with the launch of our CCS designation, our certified cash flow specialist program. And then uh, about five, six years ago now, we launched that into software. Anything that's a pattern can generally- That I helped build. You did. <laughs> you did help build it. Um, and and I know you worked for us early on, but you also came back for a little stint there. Because um, I enjoyed it so much the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Keegan's been helpful to us a, a couple of times uh, and we really appreciate your contribution. Uh, but yeah, so we build tools uh, to help people change their behavior. Mostly we work with institutions or independent financial advisors who use our tools with their clients, customers, or members. And what we're trying to do is help people free up the money they need to do the things that they want and need to do in the future. Uh, so on average, we find about $1,100 a month per household, and we help people learn how to give that money a job and how to keep their behavior on track. And how to set goals. I, I remember that uh, you can take that $1,100 or whatever that number is for you and allocate that towards a vacation or a home renovation or saving for your child's education, which is extremely relevant and tangible for the average individual to understand and uh, put their mind for uh, forth in, in actually achieving. Uh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, most of us make feel like we make okay money and we should definitely be getting more life from it. But often we get stuck with feeling like we'll work with what's left over and then nothing is ever left over. So often what people need is a way to look at their finances to make changes more easily and more systematically so that they can actually find that money and give it the job of fulfilling that goal. So it could be um, something short term and emotional in nature, which we strongly encourage um, there's no sense fighting your natural tendencies. You're going to get real tired and you're going to give up. 
So funding um, short-term goals takes advantage of humans' natural tendency to um, succumb to hyperbolic discounting. And that's a fancy word for, we want what we want right now. And we value things we can have now rather than things that we can have in the future. So understanding that it's really important that people set first a short-term goal that's emotional in nature before trying to fund retirement. Because if all of us say that retirement is really important and we all wanna be credit card debt free, um, the reality is those goals are very hard to stick to because they take a really long time and they're just not as enticing to us. So using the thing we want to get us to make the behavior change frees up the money to do things like fund retirement and pay down credit cards as well. So yeah, that's what we're all about, figuring out how to use us naturally <laughs> for our own advantage. Oh, that's that. That's really fantastic. And it brings up something that I picked up in your blog titled The Gap Between Financial Literacy and Capability. Um, there was one thing in particular that really strung a chord with me, and it was we need experiences and programs which increase the likelihood of us acting differently. And what I hear from what you're doing with your app, the Cashflow Planning app, how, how did you realize that uh, you needed to, one, increase the likelihood of someone knowing to save and two, implement that in your application? Yeah. So, um, you know, going back to the, the gap between literacy and capability, um, what we've discovered, I think we can all agree that there's a problem with financial literacy. I don't think there's anybody left saying, no, no, it's all fine. I don't think that's that's the <laughs> scenario. Um, the problem is, is that we've misunderstood the issue. The issue is not that people don't understand anything and that if they just understood it, they do better. The problem is there's no link between understanding something and then making the change. And so when you look at that gap, you examine a lot of financial literacy programs, often they're side projects. So if an institutional organization is doing a financial literacy campaign, it's not really a core thing that the whole organization's doing. It's something they're doing in addition to their normal offerings, which is a challenge because things that are in addition to don't always get the attention that they need. But often we're thinking, well, if we just explain to somebody how their credit score works, um, then they're good. They're fine. Off they go. Uh, and a lot of these initiatives are tested by seeing if somebody remembers what you just told them which is not the same as changing their behavior. Uh, changing their behavior is actually what we're looking for. When we say we want to improve financial literacy, I think what we actually mean is we want people to save more, pay down their debt and be more financially secure. And just telling them stuff isn't enough. We need to link that aha to an action. And so, um, for example, with our app Winton, which is the app that the public would use when they're working with an institutional advisor, um, that we've partnered with, uh, they'll get specific advice. So our app will not tell you you overspent at Starbucks. We've learned that that makes you feel guilty and it doesn't make you change anything. You just turn the notifications off. But <laughs> if, you, um, if you saw that it's only safe to spend in your scenario $400 a week, then you can make a different call when it comes to Starbucks, but nobody's telling you it's bad or good. It just is. And so our app is saying, okay, you learn about what we call committed and, and uh, spendable cash flow, and then you use what you see in the app based on your own information to then take a very prescribed action. So it's that making that link between knowing and doing, because there's too much of a gap there. 
That's really awesome. So not only are you increasing awareness within your application about financial literacy, but you are also connecting the dots between being aware of something and then actually taking action. Um, Do you notice that the more people use your app, their spending habits change over time and the dependency on the app um, isn't as much? So I definitely noticed as an advisor, the advice that the app now provides that I I advise people to do was definitely functional over time. Um, With our app right now, it's not plugged into the other end of a banking system. So we can't be 100% certain. What we can see is that they found money and we know that the institutions we're working with are have the products to allow them to set those and fulfill those goals. So I think we're still a little, a little ways away from a fully closed loop. Um, right. But the activities, um, having financial activities to do, so things to look at and things to do, um, is proven to improve financial literacy and capability. Um, and that's why when we have households where only one person manages all the bills and things, then the other person actually loses some of that capability. So giving people an activity to do with their finances that's relevant to their scenario um, has some scientific backing to to say that it's valuable. I just want to take a quick step back for a moment and uh, ask you to define financial literacy in your own words, because I'm sure if we all gave our own definitions, we'd have three different things to say. And I'm just really interested in what you you have come (coughs) to define as financial literacy. So I would define financial literacy as understanding. And I would define financial capability as being able to apply what I understood over time. And those are how those two things are different. So I'd say financial literacy is understanding basic concepts. So understanding what a mortgage is or maybe how interest rates work. Um, Understanding what your credit score is and what things influence your credit score. So when you can retain that type of information over time, it's it's financial literacy. So we can tick that box. But the knowing something and being able to change something are different. So knowing what makes a good credit score and knowing what my credit score is doesn't mean I have the activities I need to change the habit or to change the outcome. So I might understand that, um, you know, my credit utilization affects my credit score. I might understand that if I have, if I'm too close to my limits, that I'm going to have a problem. But if I don't have a way to reduce the proximity to my limit that my credit balances are, I have a chance of ending up in a position where I'm going to not improve my credit score, even though I pick understand how my credit score works. You see that there's a, a disconnect. Like, so do, do you find that people are able to uh, act like using uh, the cash flow apps uh, and not still not understand the financial literacy concept? So like, does your app help people uh, jump over financial literacy and straight into action at all? Or uh, is financial literacy still like a, a cornerstone or a bedrock of everyone's financial behavior? I think it doesn't help you jump. It helps you use it. Um, so we have some e-learning for the general public. Now, um, we do a lot of webinars to the general public through partners that we work with. Um, so just putting out a tool or a method for somebody to try doesn't work if they don't understand the underlying purpose or reason that they would want to use that method. So I still think literacy is important, 
I just think it's not the end of the sentence. You know, can we imagine that, um, you know, everybody passes their uh, initial learner's test and then we say, okay, off you go. And nobody tests them driving the car. I mean, we would not do that. Um, and so I like to, I love the comparison of a, operating a car to operating our finances because it makes the gaps in our logic very visible. Like, oh yeah, um, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't expect that. Well, when you notice that not a lot of people were generally aware of their finances, when did you, well, how did you come to the conclusion that, okay, at some point, something is going to trigger them to learn about financial literacy. How how did that come to be? I, I don't know that I came to that conclusion so much as I observed it being concluded around me. So I would have started in the industry almost 20 years ago now. Um, and, you know, I definitely went to my early clients and realized, oh, um, they don't know how their mortgage is working. They know what the rate is. Um, and we've been socialized to compare rates when it comes to savings and debt really heavily, so much so that we often ignore all the other factors. But I realized that most clients weren't asking their financial institution how much their debt would actually cost over the entire amortization of the loan um, over that period. So they would understand their mortgage was 4%. But they wouldn't understand that borrowing $250,000 means you pay $259,000 in interest because of how long it's over. And there was definitely a gap around um, kind of, I would call it mortgage myopia, where we think that, well, if I'm paying this payment today, then that's my payment for 25 years. And we, we have a hard time thinking in the future that what if my rate is 7%? What if it's 12%? What if it's 2%? What do I change if that happens? So I definitely noticed that there was that understanding enough to apply and get and use these things, not enough clarity around what does it actually cost me? Um, and what I found there is the questions to ask were even difficult for somebody to come up with. And if we look around us, um, when I looked into the industry, when I looked into the products, how they're marketed, how they're purchased, it's very obvious that that is the likely outcome, that the likely outcome is we're taught to shop rate and not to pay attention to the actual cost of debt. Um, everything points us in that direction. And most of us, like we just follow it. Um, we have enough stuff to worry about. Who wants to lay awake at night doing um, mortgage calculations in your head? <laughs> uh, I do actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but right? Like, so there were so many gaps there. And so I went to my, uh, my managers at the time, I was really, really new in the industry. And I figured I just hadn't found something yet. Like there was some kind of class or course or thing you were supposed to do. Um, and that once I knew that thing, then I could help people with that. And what I discovered is there's some pretty big gaps in the industry itself around debt and cash flow in particular. And so um, there was no magic wand. There was no thing I could just go do. And so then I set about trying to solve it on my own. Um, over time, countless studies, um, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of studies have been done to prove there's definitely an issue with financial understanding 
Um, right now, the most popular financial health scoring metrics is very much a confidence score, which I think is an excellent thing to measure, but is not an actual indicator of financial health. It's an indicator of your own perception of your financial health. And humans are overconfident. Yeah, totally. So I, I want to frame a couple of things here. Uh, just so everyone knows, my financial literacy came almost solely from working at the Money Finder, which is now the cash flow. Uh, and building the cash flow app, the first iteration of it, I remember sitting there and not really understanding the formulas, but having to grind at those formulas for a couple months before everything just clicked. So, mm-hmm. like one thing that, like when I'm talking to my friends, they're not so financially literate sometimes, and it's okay that that is the case, right? It's not something that you're gonna get after one conversation with a financial advisor. These are sometimes really hard concepts to learn and. I go back to that car example that you gave, right? You you take that written test and then you actually need to go apply it, which was a metaphor for the journey at my journey at the money finder and building the software. And that was, that's really great. So uh, I don't, yeah, I want to bring more attention to the pre-awareness stage though, because like all of our industries, we are in financial technology industries right yeah. now. And the people that we're serving are people that one, don't have time to be in this industry. Uh, mm-hmm. And two, require the knowledge in order to have good financial health. So Mm -hmm. I want to talk more about the pre-awareness stage because yes, I completely agree that people need to learn about financial literacy in order to safeguard their their financial health for a longer time. But what, what have you observed that triggers people to realize, oh, I actually need to spend some time learning about finances? I think it's often when they're faced with a, a more significant financial decision. So, so when they feel pardon? When they feel pain? When they feel pain or when they have an opportunity and they're not sure what to do. Okay. So life events tend to trigger thoughts of, oh, I should probably understand how that works. Right. But if it's too hard to figure out how it works or if it's easy enough to get the thing like the loan or the mortgage or the credit card, then there's usually no barrier to slow us down. Um, But, you know, most people would um, need to find out at least enough to apply for, say, a student loan, or they need to understand what the information they enter into the credit card application to get the credit card. Unfortunately, unlike your driver's license, there's no test you have to pass to get a credit card. Um, And I've often, another analogy I've used and actually have live blindfolded people and handed them a circular saw, which they did not know was unplugged by the time I handed it to them, uh, making the point that most debt products are power tools and you can use them to your advantage. If you learn where the safety is and the instructions, you learn how to use them, you practice. But if you just grab a hold of them, um, without any awareness and you just kind of fling them around, you will hurt yourself. Um, yeah. So yeah, for years I had uh, a little purple blindfold and a circular saw that I traveled around with. Um, yeah, uh, more than one occasion, my, uh, speaking uh, customer would say, now do we need to get special insurance for that? And I'd say, no, no, I'm going to unplug it, uh, before I give it to them. But, uh, yeah, we know that it's just, it's just until it hurts us or until we need something, we don't tend to think about it. And so rather than trying to force everybody 
to know things. Cause if you don't use what you learn about money very quickly after you learn it, it'll just erode. It didn't do you any good. Teaching high school students about mortgages doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, but if we can catch people right before they make decisions or when they're likely because of life events to be in the process of making decisions, then that's more um, functional. That pre-awareness is, is catching them in where they're about to collide with that opportunity or pain. That's fantastic. And this is actually such a great time for me to bring up another blog post that you've written, which is called How to Lose a Million Dollars. Very catchy title, by the way. <laughs> when I was looking at some of the blogs you've written, that was the first one that I clicked on because it was, you know, a very great title. And the third point in that blog was wait 10 years to start investing. It's one of the mistakes that people make. Can you elaborate more on this particular point? Yeah, so that goes back to that fancy hyperbolic discounting or uh, present bias that humans suffer from. So we're just so much more likely to think, well, later I'll have money and then I'll invest it. Right now, I would rather do this. Or sometimes we'll even talk to ourselves in a way that's far more strict and we'll say, I have to do this. I have to do this now and I can't afford to save or to invest. And so that hesitation costs us a lot. Humans um, really, really have a hard time understanding the time value of money. Even if we logically understand that if we put $200 away every month for the last 10 years, that it would be worth a significant amount of money by this period. Um, it's really hard to get that past self, that in the moment person um, who's 20, 25, to start investing. There's a lot of, well, I'll wait till I've bought my house. I'll wait till I'm in a nicer apartment. I'll wait till I have a better job and then I can make up for it. But that 10 years passes, whether you do anything about it or not, like time doesn't care whether you got your stuff together. It just keeps going. You said put $200 away, but you don't mean away just um, in cash, correct? You mean away as an investment. Well, I mean, even a way in cash would be better than just spending it and not, not having anything for it. Um, but yeah, if, if you're, if it's a long-term thing, you're putting money towards. So if it's, you know, starting to save for retirement really young makes a bigger difference and not everyone will retire in the same way another person will. But one thing's for sure, we eventually get older. We eventually get tired um, and no bucket of money falls from the sky uh, to rescue each of us when we're older and tireder. Um, so, you know, de depending on what it's for, I mean, if it's money you're putting away to get married in six months, don't put it in an investment. There's too much risk. It would fluctuate. Right. But if it's something you might use 20 or 30 years from now, you have the luxury of time and you can allow it um, to fluctuate as long as it's appropriate for your risk tolerance. Um, so I was used to tell people, um, if you, uh, you know, if we have $100,000 on January 1 and on March 30th, we have $90,000, are you freaking out? No, not quite yet. Okay, but 80,000 freaking out yet? No, 70 freaking out. Okay, so your risk tolerance, you can, t you can get a sense of how much fluctuation makes me panic at a period when I'm not actually selling that investment. Um, so certainly you could be putting that uh, in investments. I would highly recommend people considering that um, explore, uh, educate themselves on what investment options are available and then um, deal with somebody who is properly licensed uh, if they're not self-directed buying their own. 
Uh, but just um, buying any old investment without understanding it is also as dangerous as using a credit card without understanding how it works. We've talked about this a couple of times now. It's about um, understanding the compounding effect of putting money away as opposed to really um, having a gratifying effect of spending it right now. Do you notice that with the you know generations coming after ours, because we were, live in such a we live in a world where instant gratification is provided to us on all of our technologies. Is it getting harder to reach this generation of people, or I guess um, adults now, children? And is it hard for them to understand the long-term effect of compounding money and saving money? Um, I hate putting generations in a box. Um, I like that. In reality, like that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. in reality, there's an awful lot of baby boomers um, who were very fortunate to come into adulthood in a period when um, suddenly we had two household incomes, which allowed us to save. Interest rates skyrocketed in the late 70s and early 80s, which made everyone go, ooh, be careful. Um, at least for a little while. Um, and so uh, there, but there's a lot of, you know, people who are very close to retirement or in retirement who have a huge amount of debt or, or significant portion of people are going into retirement in debt. Um, and in some countries we see um, the level of debt carried by senior citizens growing faster than it is for students. So I don't like saying that people belong generationally in a box. And one of my biggest pet peeves is um, the generation coming behind any generation before it. Um, the, the generation before tends to turn around and go, oh, those kids today, look at those. They're not making smart choices in my day. Well, in post-depression era, um, you know, when my mom was born, you could drive her home from the hospital without a car seat. I don't even think they existed. She laid on the front seat with my grandfather's hand on her belly while they drove home. Uh, when I have my son in 2007, I would be arrested if I took my child home the same way. And a car seat costs about 200 bucks. So I can't exercise the same types of financial wisdom or behaviors as my grandparents would have. And so feeling bad or judging a generation because they can't behave like people did 70 or 40 or 30 years ago is unfair. Um, I have worked with a lot of uh, folks in the millennial generation, and I have seen all kinds of more responsible decisions <laughs> from that group um, than I have from some people in other generations. So I don't think it's as cut and dry as that. I think that um, there's benefits to um, younger generations who are more comfortable with technology, although I would say that is changing too. Uh, <laughs> my mom can do all kinds of stuff with Facebook now. So impressed. Uh, well but, done. <laughs> yeah, right? Like she can do all kinds of stuff. She figured out gifts and everything. Um, but it, we we get stuck in generations. And I think what we need to do is pay attention to the individual profile of somebody's behavior or indicators that they might have a gap in understanding and using technology, education, and all the things we already are drawn to, to help us make better decisions. But like, saying like younger people are worse or, or um, more senior people are better. It's not true. It varies. Some young people are doing really, really great. And some aren't some people who are 75 are doing really, really great. And some aren't. Um, yeah. And there's some unfair advantages that have to do with the time you were born, which you can't control. 
Thank you so much for that eye-opening answer. That was really fantastic for me to listen to and know to not categorize generations that come before me and are after me um, you know, in a box, which I was doing before quite evidently. So thank you so much for that fantastic answer. I will know to keep that in mind with the way that I think about things as well. <laughs> it's so- really hard to help people if they feel like they're being judged, right? We can't listen to anyone when we feel like, oh, you already put me in a box. Why am I going to listen to you? Right. And I think in finance, we have to be super careful of that. Right. So when did you first hear of cryptocurrency? That would be Keegan's fault. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, wow. I, it was in like, the news, but yeah. I didn't really pay any attention to it till, uh, till Keegan got all uh, excited about it and started talking about it. Um, and so, you know, it would definitely, that would be an area where I didn't have much financial literacy and I had to catch up and understand. And I would not say I'm an expert in that area at all because, and it's evolving so fast. Um, but definitely Keegan is responsible for my understanding of cryptocurrency at this point. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite memories is uh, riding the elevator with you in the morning, and I, I showed you my phone and I said, "Look, Steph, I'm buying Bitcoin," <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, be careful with that. You know, it's a bubble, right?" And this was when Bitcoin was at eleven hundred dollars, and that totally freaked me out. But I uh, held on uh, through to today. But you were right; it was a bubble. Uh, mm-hmm. The bubble's deflated, and now we're reinflating, and so we're just riding yeah. the market, and it's uh, it's it's a crazy ride. But that was a favorite memory of mine. Just you kind of introduced the topic of it being a bubble to me. So I introduced you to cryptocurrency. You introduced me to the risks of uh, bubble-like behavior and and financial literacy and as financial well. literacy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And investing and, and the importance of investing early. Like, so we've, we've covered a yeah. couple of those topics, but yeah, let's, let's jump into crypto. Yeah. So well, jumping into crypto, something that we, we love to talk about and we've talked about before is cryptocurrency is allows us to be responsible for our own finances because you have to, if you don't, and if you aren't well aware of what you're doing with crypto, you will lose it all. You just will. And the more that you've looked into cryptocurrency, what are your what were your initial thoughts? I mean, I think it's a valid it's valid for us to start to think about currency differently. Um, there's lots of struggles economically around the world that currency either helps or hurts one side of the scenario or another. Um, there's there's an issue with who has control over what. Um, I think that causes people to go, well, wait a second. Like, and, and, and the other thing is that there's lots of currencies that aren't currencies, right? Time is currency, attention is currency. There's, there's all sorts of advertisers uh, want your attention first as a currency, and then they want you to buy something. So I think, I think it's inevitable um, that we would start down this road. I couldn't have predicted the road it has gone down. Um, in my initial understanding of what was happening. And I've seen since some really interesting uses of blockchain technology, even um, around um, certification. So CE credits and properly certifying people in a way that could be accepted at a broader way 
is something I've seen that's built on blockchain technology. So um, that was something Keegan helped me understand because I thought like lots of other people I knew thought that blockchain was crypto and that no, it's just a methodology. It's just a way um, to build a currency. So um, I think it's inevitable. I think it's interesting. I think people need to be careful like any other currency or asset class. It's not something that's bad. It's not something that's good. It's something that is, um, and we have to think about it like an asset class. And I think we need to think about why am I using crypto? Is it for a specific purpose? Is it to be remunerated? Is it to save? Is it, am I in doing this because I think the currency is going to gain value? And so I'm looking at it like an investment. Therefore, I can leave this money alone for a long period of time. Or do I mean for that to be my day-to-day spending? Um, and then if my day-to-day spending fluctuates really hardly on me, what happens, right? Um, so I think it's, um, it's tipped a lot of things on its head. And I think it'll still take a while for it to be really broadly utilized um, at the general public level. And that's typical of financial products in general. Um, the financial system moves very, very, very slowly. <laughs> Um, and the financial system is highly conservative because in the rare case, when it gets all aggressive, that's where we get those bubbles and that's where we see major fraud. And that's when we see crashes is when everybody's like, oh yeah, this is definitely, and this is definitely good for everyone all the time. Everyone do it. And those are the, usually the really dangerous things. So, um, I think it'll be a part of the evolution of personal finance. And I think it's an exciting Thing to pay attention to, but unless you understand it, like all other financial anything, I think uh, be careful, understand, then use. What are your thoughts on inflation? Ooh, um, inflation is it's it's a challenging thing um, because right now, especially with the the money that's being pumped into the economy to help people to stabilize us. There's a lot of fear that it could come with huge inflation after the fact. But to some degree, um, the country has to keep in mind whether people are stretched too thin. Because if inflation was allowed to rise too high too quickly, and interest rates on debt in particular went with it, what you end up with is a bunch of bankrupt people who can't pay anybody back anyway. So it's like you can't let the foot off the brake too fast. Um, so I think there's a lot of talk. I have no idea what's going to happen. Wish I did. <laughs> would tell you what my crystal ball says, but I don't have one. I love that um, honest answer. You, you yeah. Yeah. Say, it's, um, I think the really thing to, for people to keep aware of is, um, the inflation of everyday things, um, not just inflation, how it relates to debt. Um, cause humans tend to, um, they, we tend to anchor, to pricing of certain things. So you may have heard your grandparents or parents, especially a loaf of bread for whatever reason, um, people will tell you how much a loaf of bread costs at like a certain phase of their life. And most people, it's like the same phase. I don't know why we get so, uh, so much attention to the price of bread at one period of time, but we tend to anchor. And so then when we anchor that something costs a certain amount, then we plan forward in our head you know, that, that food will only ever cost us this much, but if inflation gets out of control, you know, we could find that food costs, you know, 55% of what we make 
And then we can't pay the debt we racked up. So just being very conscious of the debt levels you carry, because the reality of day-to-day expenses and how inflation could affect them is concerning. And for people who are already retired or anybody living off a benefit that uses a cost of living index, there's a lot of things that get dropped from those indexes. So, um, you know, the price of food might have gone up 8%, but maybe the cost of living index only goes up 1% because they dropped a bunch of stuff out of their calculation. Um, so some of those things are, are concerning. Um, I can't see how the car industry would handle inflation really well because there's such narrow margins in some of these industries. Um, and people are already over levered with things like new vehicles. Um, I've this, I've seen spikes in sales in COVID, which was surprising to me. Um, but yeah, inflation is a potential time bomb. Um, but we just have to watch and see. Um, and I think as long as people are carrying too much debt, there's just as much risk to inflation to holding it back. So, and I'm so, not an economist. <laughs> <laughs> well, we actually don't want an answer from an economist right now because your perspective is really important for this particular next question, which is the reason I asked uh, what your thoughts on inflation were is that thinking of one particular cryptocurrency in mind, Bitcoin, it is a deflationary currency, also dubbed as digital gold. So what are your thoughts on that as an investment class, it being a deflationary currency? Um, that's my first question. And then I'd also want you to maybe segue into how you imagine um, going on the gold standard again would impact our government currency. So I think the gold standard question is probably above my uh, pay grade. So I'll probably <laughs> leave that one alone. Um, the question about deflationary, leveraging something that's deflationary, I think the problem is, is we determine whether something is inflationary or deflationary based on the past. And um, if you ever uh, bought a mutual fund, the number one disclaimer is past performance is not an indicator of future performance. And so we look at um, things that have happened, like the, the Great Depression is used a lot to or, or World War II from an economic perspective is used a lot. You'll see it in the news. You know, we haven't seen this since World War II. We have, and then we start trying to apply all the other metrics that happened in World War II, but it was very, very different, right? If this had happened during World War II, um, clearly we got through the Spanish flu. So clearly we, we survived pandemics. But if what's happening with COVID right now, it happened during World War II, the, the industries that we currently have, many of them didn't even exist. And um, much of what um, some of our jobs are don't matter where we are at all now, but even 10 years ago, we might not have been able to handle that. So I think the problem with um, assuming that something is inflationary or deflationary as an investment class is we're not basing that on the future when we're in inflation, because we don't know what that is. We're basing it on the past. And so that can still be like, Spread things out, make sure you understand what you invest in, um, but maybe that's a good hedge. But, but that hedging um, philosophy is based on the past and, and not based on the future. And we just can't know it. I wish we could, 
But there's a lot of weird things going on right now that are counter to what anybody would have predicted. And then there's a whole bunch of things that are completely what makes sense. And it's, it's just, yeah, it's a completely new environment. And one of the new things about this environment is just the sheer volume that uh, of money that is getting printed by our world governments for uh, like right or wrong reasons aside. Uh, like, I think we can take just the fact that it's happening and, and like talk about that for a moment. Like, I want to know how you conceptualize three trillion dollars. Uh, like that, that would be the U.S. stimulus package. And like, what does that number mean to you? Like, especially in relation to that that inflation question. Uh, because like for someone, I mean, like you try to think about $3 trillion and that's just, it's really difficult to even conceptualize properly what that number means. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to do that with a million. It's even harder to do that with a billion. Trillion is just so far beyond what I thought governments would be able to print and uh, and still like keep inflation in check. So I want to have that, that question fielded. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, full disclosure, not an economist. Right. Um, <laughs> oh, we, we, yeah, we just love talking about these things and exploring them. So, I mean, I, I think that um, the size of the packages are very different than things like bailouts of an industry or um, bailouts related to like really dumb stuff that shouldn't have happened, like mortgage-backed securities and other things where there were a few people going, what are you doing? And everyone, we went, it's fine. We're making money. Shut up. Um, <laughs> this is very, yeah, yeah. This is very different than that. Um, so it's, it's a little less, um, you know, something that can be controlled by regulation or fixed by regulation. Um, and so I think that there's, there's a reality that it will have to have some impact at some point in time. Um, at the same time, if you look, um, you know, for, I think it's 2000, I'm trying to think 89 to 2009, um, sal- debt rose six times what salaries did. So some increase in resources was necessary across the board anyway. Um, we've survived a long time on money that wasn't ours. Um, and so some injection might settle things out. The way I really think about it for myself is what was the alternative? Right. What was the alternative, right? So I think um, I could criticize all the governments for all the things that they've done after they do it and we see the outcome, but I'm really glad I didn't have to make any of those decisions because I don't think there was a right solution. I think there was a bunch of bad ones and you had to pick the least bad, bad one. That's a really great way to conceptualize that. I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. And like to your point, like looking at this in retrospect will be a lot easier to to plan when we like understand the consequences of what we did. Like it's it's kind of an experiment to to print three trillion dollars and and put that into the economy in various ways. It's that's largely never been done before, uh, at least on the scale of like the United States government or the Canadian government. Yeah. And we could see something where like costs of living go up, but interest rates don't because the government can control the interest rate, but retailers and the public determine between supply and demand, what something actually costs. Um, And I'm concerned that some things that went up because of demand will not slide back to a natural. Um, You see that a lot um, with things that once they've gotten up to a certain price, we become numb to it. We don't notice that it's overpriced compared to where it was 
pre-COVID. And so if it never slides back, we may not notice, but it could leave a lasting impact in the cost of goods to live our lives, but may not show up uh, in interest rates right away. Because again, if the interest rates rise so high that none of us can pay any of our bills and we all just go bankrupt, then nobody gets anything. (laughs) That won't work. Right. I had a grin on my face earlier because um, while you were just um, saying something there a second ago, I was thinking, oh, maybe the government could use cash flow um, or the way. (laughs) And not because um, I don't think that the government doesn't have great planning for finances, but just going back to the blog where you said how to lose a million dollars and, you know, most people wait 10 years to start investing. Could the government have had a plan, um, a pandemic plan per se, or like some sort of uh, plan where they needed to use money from their reserves in order to one preserve the purchasing power of the current currency, um, and also too just because it's good practice to save money while you're making money for a rainy day. So I don't know if that's the answer. Um, I mean, uh, like I said, all of us can look backwards at someone else's decision. And we're all, you know, armchair critics. We're like, you could, you should have done this. You should have done that. None of us had to do any of the deciding in the moment when you didn't know all the other information. I think the stepped approach of only so many months or weeks of support being announced, as stressful as it might be, is the smarter way to go because it gives a set point. So you only get this far and then we recalibrate kind of like software development, right? We, right. You don't say, here's the beginning here's the end. Nothing changes in between. We, we develop and then we learn and then we fix and then we develop and it doesn't ever quite end up exactly the way we thought, but we get a chance to improve it over time instead of just be stuck with our plan that we made two years ago forever. Um, so I think there's, there's that reality. I think something really interesting that cash was very interested in helping solve is that I, I think the way that people could be evaluated Um, for whether they need benefits, how much benefit they need, whether they um, should have debt postponement or whether it'll actually hurt them um, from both financial institutions and the government could be very effective and cash flow could be quite helpful there. Because unfortunately, a lot of the ways we assess these things, we determine what your benefit is based on what you used to make, not on what you actually need. We determine whether you qualify for a debt postponement right now, they're pretty much just like, oh, you're breathing, you have a debt, here you go, you can postpone it. But maybe I've postponed it and I didn't do anything to save what potential leftover cash flow could have been during those six months I didn't have loan payments. Now I've got no real savings um, and then my loan payments turn back on and then I'm in big trouble. Um, so I think there's a real opportunity to understand people's cash flow and to use that as a way to give people who need something what they need to help people who get a benefit to make the most of it and to ensure that people who won't benefit from the benefit aren't also taking advantage of it with being very objective. Um, And so that would be really interesting to be involved in. Um, Can't say that's happened yet, but yeah, like that understanding, because often like even when we, um, when somebody gets a loan, they get approved based on um, their, their income, they get approved based on their credit. And then if it's something like a mortgage, their TDS and GDS are used. So they figure out like how much are your other loan servicing payments? How much do you pay in taxes and heat and this new mortgage payment? And that's how I decide what you earn. 
but I could have a thousand dollars a month of childcare in addition to that. And you don't, and we'll qualify for the same thing, but I can afford less than you and it isn't visible. And so there's some really interesting ways, I think, to use understanding of people's cash flow to improve getting the right um, resource to the right person. That's, uh, thank you for saying that. And I think that that's a really great segue into talking about one of the books that you've written called Spent, S for the dollar sign. And you, you talked about a money mindset in that. Can you elaborate more on a money mindset? Yeah, so it was something actually that was supposed to go in my first book. And my then assistant was reading through the first draft and she said, I think this is its own book. (laughs) (laughs) So just for reference, the first book you wrote was called Diffusing the Dead Bomb, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not the title. Yeah, and that was, yeah, it had a little piggy bank on the front with a fuse that was burning down. Um, And uh, yeah, I think all my books so far have piggy banks on them. Um, but, uh, yeah, so spent the, the money mindsets, um, came from observations of, um, clients that I worked with and I put it on a control scale. So the brick wall is the most controlling money mindset and the optimist is the least controlling money mindset and none of them are good and none of them are bad, but they vary. And so it goes the brick wall, um, who's very controlling and, Um, You know, these people are often teachers or military professional police officers. They're very like rules regiment. Um, They research a lot. And then the bunker is really concerned about being uh, saving. So they're also very conservative, like the brick wall typically, but a little less take charge, a little bit more certainty. Uh, Then we have the justifier. Um, This is the person who um, isn't necessarily bad or good with their money but they are very good at uh, backing up why they did something, whether it makes any logical sense or not. So um, I can remember one of my clients um, who bought a minivan and had one child and I wasn't at all judging her, but I had said to her, like, what, what made you pick a minivan? And um, that's actually what I based the justifier on because she said, well, uh, we only have one child, but he's in hockey. And when he's in hockey, sometimes I have to take his four teammates and sometimes I take the dog and they have all these bags. And I mean, she had spent like 10 minutes explaining why she needed a minivan. Um, And she was really, really good at that. She was equally as good at using that type of argument to talk herself out of stuff once I taught her how to use that to her advantage. Uh, So that's a justifier. Dreamer's right in the middle. That's me. That's somebody who's like very easily excited by shiny things. These are typically entrepreneurs, people who will stretch and take risks. Yep. Um, and the thing with those people is they tend to have need more safe and boring assets so that they can go take their risks with their income and not be risky all the way around. Uh, and they need filters, ways to think through whether something is really an opportunity or just a distracting shiny thing. Uh, Then we have uh, the masquerader. Um, These are often very intelligent, often very well-educated people that uh, everyone assumes are good with money because they make lots of money. Um, And so if you looked at their lifestyle, their home, their car, the way their um, kids are are dressed or the way they they socialize or their extracurriculars, you would think, wow, they are rolling in it. Uh, but often that type of person, whether they're rolling in it or not, it's not relevant. They measure their success on what everyone can see. 
And so they're very high risk for um, being taken advantage of uh, with finances. They're high risk for wasting money. Um, and they're so smart often that people just assume smart means good with money. And those two things are not necessarily the same. Right. Uh, and then we have the undercover agent, which is somebody who really um, all they're spending is day to day. You can't really see anything shinier or fun uh, standing out. And they do not like to share their financial information. When two undercover agents are together, everything's separate. They have a house account. They put everything in the house account. Not that other mindsets don't do that, but it's like a dead giveaway for that one. And then finally, the optimist is, is the person who um, also very easy to take advantage of. These are the, the types of folks that unfortunately um, would be uh, prey to scam artists. Um, they're the type of person that would walk into their financial advisor and say, whatever you think. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, because they're, they think that they're not capable of understanding or that it's too hard or that it's not something that they're good at. And so they need a lot of encouragement to look at different frameworks of how to understand their money so that it makes sense to them so that they're not so busy being intimidated that they're not trying. So everybody's different. Nobody's bad. Nobody's good. But that control scale helps a financial professional or an organization understand how to better support that individual. And um, with couples, I'm actually just writing a course for our CCS designation right now, where we're actually getting into this part where couples who are really far away on the control scale really struggle to cooperate with money because they're too opposite um, in who has control over mm. what. So yeah, it affects everything, how we save, how we spend, how we invest. That was so interesting. I just want to uh, re or summarize all of these personalities. So there was the optimist, there was the undercover agent, the masquerader, the justifier, yeah. and the bunker, the, the bunker, bunker, and the, the dreamer. dreamer. The yeah, the brick wall. Yep. That was such a pleasure to like just walk through that with you and like oh I can actually rec rec uh, recognize or resonate with each one of them in yeah. my own way like. I kind of feel like an amalgamation of all of them. Uh, no, it's certain percentages. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So we said it's the dreamer. Scale, right? Nobody's yeah. one thing or the other. We're just somewhere there. And some of us have like part of us, the saving part of us might be one way or the spending part of us might be another way, but something's more dominant. Um, and it infects our relationships with each other and with money. The, the last thing that I want to give to our listeners, Stephanie, is uh, would you be okay with us going through the core values of cash flow and and talking about them because they you've installed them in me and I've since taken them and just lived the core the core values that that you set forth in your company and I'm not going to hit all of them just because there's a couple that I forget uh, but we've got work life harmony balance work, work is fun harmony. no balance. Work-life harmony, no balance. There's no 50-50. Okay, maybe I threw that balance word in there. So work-life harmony, work is fun, credit where credit is due. Uh, what else? The challenges as adventures. Uh, what else do we have in there? Uh, you were the one who worked. I know, Stephanie, you're going to have to help me. I think I got four and I think there's seven. There's eight. So eight. contagious passion. Contagious passion, yes. Yeah. Forever tenacious, which is probably the one that underpins me all the time. True. Uh, lead by example. Yep. And innovate through experimentation, which is also something I find challenges as adventures, forever tenacious, and innovate through experimentation 
is in our DNA all day, every day with everything that we do. And then the others are very prominent, but they're, um, but they show up in different ways. Uh, but that forever tenacious, like, oh man, this is hard. <laughs> I've wanted to give up more times than I can count. Um, good thing I'm, I'm so stubborn. glad you didn't. <laughs> good I'm thing just, I'm stubborn. <laughs> yeah, we're we're stubborn too. It's good. It's good to be stubborn. I'm so glad that you you don't give up and you haven't given up. It's uh, it's really incredible to to see your journey and to, to touch base as often as we do and check in on how cash flow is doing. I can't wait for when cash flow becomes available to individuals. I've already told you this, but I I want it to plug my finances into, including my Bitcoin. I, I, I want to see my Bitcoin on the Cashflow app. I want to see how much that's worth and, and how to manage that. And I can't wait for them when that's a reality, but uh, I think that's some some date in the future. Some yeah. date six. Well, the, the potential has started with us um, starting to work with employers um, who provide our tools and e-learning and webinars directly to employees where there's no financial institution involved. Um, so there's a step in that direction. Um, our, my, our and my um, uh, thesis has always been that um, we're not really helping if we're not helping to change the industry. And that I have discovered the hard way can't be done from the outside, it has to be done from the inside and the outside at the same time. So our target has never been to um, make our customer the general public, um, but we are definitely coming up with more ways that more people can get access to both Winton webinars and e-learning um, through the work we're doing either with larger institutions or with employers. Awesome. That's fantastic. Where can people find you to get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing, Stephanie? Yeah, so I think one of the best places uh, is probably our website. Um, I'm also uh, easy to find on LinkedIn. Our website is Cashflow, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-O, because it's important to um, spell funny when you are a tech company. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Cashflow, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-O dot co. Uh, that's probably the best place. Uh, we have a blog. Um, there's some additional information there. We've got some um, posts in our LinkedIn and that sort of thing. Um, and if you are a leader of a financial institution, or if you are, um, you know, a manager or HR or a payroll professional, especially, and you have a group of employees that you're responsible for, and you're thinking, oh man, these guys need more. Um, those are the type of organizations, um, in addition to independent financial advisors, that we can help the greater public by working through them. Fantastic. Okay, to end, I have one last question. What's one radical idea that you have that you want to see come true? Well, I think uh, I think I'm living in it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think um, much of what we've done it in hindsight would definitely be a radical idea. It certainly was at the time. Um, but if we could see that everyone has a Winton financial profile to enable them to make better decisions and to enable the service providers and financial institutions to give them the exact right products and exact right service, that would be absolutely amazing. Um, and I think that would make a world of difference for most people um, to have that profile, to be able to line up with what they actually need or want. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate this conversation. It was so fantastic to learn about your perspective on the way that you view finances and you help people view their finances. And um, I already know the title for this episode because we already did Financial Literacy 101. And we if, did Crypto Literacy. Oh, we did Crypto Literacy, but this could be like Financial Literacy 902 or something because there's <laughs> so much to learn here. And that's also the area code of Nova yeah. Scotia. Yeah, we're, we're, we're both in, so. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. All right, thank you so much, Stephanie. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Stay tuned, everyone.